Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon, and I'm here with my colleague, Suzanne Spradley. We're both attorneys with NFP's legal and compliance team, and we're on the podcast to break down issues that are confronting employers and businesses uh, with respect to benefits and compliance. And we just cannot get out of the COVID-19 world, so we're going to stay there today. We are hearing more and more businesses talk about reopening, what that might look like. Obviously, that depends on the type of business you run and where in the country you may be located uh, when it comes to how quickly that will occur. But we are going to spend uh, our day today uh, talking about return to work issues. Uh, so, Suzanne, can you give us an overview of the current situation? Yeah. And first of all, I want to say that we are going to do a return to work webinar series. And so if you'll watch for announcements on that, it begins next Monday with an outside law firm um, that is going to do one on HR issues. We have five different webinars that will be provided on return to work issues. So please watch for that. Um, as it, we wanted to kind of lay the landscape and what does it look like right now for employees? And we have employers that in many different situations. But what we've seen is that some employers have chosen to uh, for other employees, which is an unpaid leave, and that is with or without the extension of benefits. Some, unfortunately, have had to lay off their employees with either terminating benefits at the point of termination, extending them, possibly subsidizing COBRA coverage. But let's look into that just a little bit more, what we're speaking to. So when we, we talk about employee benefits and eligibility thereof, what we are concerned with is the eligibility terms that are tied to, to a number of hours that an employee has to work in order to remain eligible. Some employee plans do account for unpaid leaves and do allow them to continue coverage. You, you really have to look at your plan documents, and I'm sure all of you employers are well aware by this time of what that would be. Um, but in some situations, employers have chosen to modify those plan documents for just this situation to allow for continued coverage during a furlough. What we've also seen in some cases is when a self-insured plan has had to terminate employees and has chosen to extend coverage for 90 days after termination, so um, not to uh, not to allow for that termination to occur right at the point of termination, but extend it as, as long as they could. Sort of a delayed um, loss of eligibility there. Um. Right. And, and really what we're concerned with, with any employer changing plan terms, is that they're lining it up with their carrier, whether it be a fully insured carrier or a stop-loss carrier. If they're self-funded, make sure that you're communicating with them, getting their approval if you are changing any of the eligibility terms. But now what we're looking to is beyond that. So most employers have already been in that situation, looked at their eligibility, decided whether to extend coverage or not, possibly already gone ahead, amended plan terms. Um, and But we've got employees in various situations on furlough, on uh, who have been terminated, um, continued coverage, a number of different situations that we see employees in now. Yeah, and those decisions and the situations that employers are in now obviously drive what they should be thinking about with return to work. So we're sort of set, setting the stage for um, what happened in the past to help understand return to work. Let's talk a little bit about employees and their choices when they're put on furlough with respect to qualifying events and their election changes there. Right. And, and so with this uh, podcast, we're obviously assuming that we're talking to the crowd that we're speaking to are uh, handle employee benefits. And so when we go through some of these terms like cafeteria plans, we're already assuming kind of a base level of understanding with regard to that. 
with employee with cafeteria plans, that is the plan that's governing whether employees can pay for coverage on a pre-tax basis and has eligibility and election um, rules tied to that 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 prohibit employees from changing their elections unless there's a qualifying event. We look for the qualifying event that's tied to furloughs, and that would be a change in status. Um, along with a, a qualifying event, there must be a loss of eligibility in order for there to be uh, the availability to make an election change. So that ties us back right now to the discussion of what the employer has chosen to do in these furloughed situations. Mm-hmm. So you do have you do have a situation where um, an individual has a change in status because they have reduced their hours, but was there a a uh, corresponding loss of eligibility or not? Um, if there is no loss of eligibility, there are still some ways in which an employee can change those elections under the cafeteria plan rules. One of them is if the individual intends to enroll in an exchange plan. That would permit them to change their election. Also, if the individual would like to change plans within the employer's plan makeup. So if they want to go to a different plan the employer is offering, if they've had this furlough occur, they would be able to do so under the cafeteria plan rules. Right. One one question we get quite a bit, though, is with respect to the employee's situation. So something like a financial uh, condition change or a salary reduction. Right. Is that a qualifying event? Yeah, unfortunately it's not. And you would hope that it would be. So in this case, the employee is no longer has income, for example. Um, right. They have a reduction in hours. They, they get paid on an hourly basis. They no longer are being paid or they've had a reduction in some other way in their salary. They can't afford it anymore. They want to discontinue their coverage. Uh, that unfortunately is not in and of itself um, the the uh, underlying reason for changing your elections. However, as we mentioned already, one of the other reasons may be may allow them to change that election. Right. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about Cobra and how that applies. Usually, you need a Cobra event, which would be a termination of an employment or a reduction in hours, but you also have to couple that with a loss of eligibility. So how does that work here in, a, in the situation of a furloughed employee or a terminated employee? Well, you're right. And again, it's similar to the cafeteria plan rules. You still have to have that secondary um, criteria of loss of eligibility. So you have to look back again to how the employers are handling furloughed employees. Um, we also have to take into consideration the ACA. Mm-hmm. So the ACA will factor into this idea of loss of eligibility. So let's look at a few different scenarios. You could have one where the individual did lose eligibility because of the loss of hours, the, co- the coverage was ending at the end of the month, the COBRA should be offered in the month thereafter. So that's one scenario. Now let's look at a scenario where you have an employer who is subject to the ACA and subject to the mandate. So they have instituted either a monthly measurement period or a look-back measurement period. The monthly measurement period is fairly simple because their full-time status will be determined monthly if they have a reduction in hours, they are no longer eligible for coverage based on that full-time status right. at that point. If you have a look-back methodology that's used, it's a bit more complex. But as you all know, because you've been working now with this for a period of time, if the individual qualifies based on their prior measurement period and they're now in their stability period, they will not lose eligibility until the end of that stability period. So even though their hours have been reduced, they are still considered full-time throughout that stability period. COBRA would not kick in, typically, until the end of that period. We also have to consider, however, if we do have a situation in which the employer has decided to extend coverage 
at the end of that stability period when the individual would typically lose eligibility, if the employer has modified its plan term so it doesn't now look at, at hours for purposes of whether the full-time status, the individual may remain on coverage. Otherwise, again, COBRA would kick in at the end of the stability period in normal course. Right. So some complicated things to think about there with respect to when eligibility is actually lost, which would trigger COBRA. Once the employer figures out when COBRA kicks in, they send the COBRA notices, employees elect COBRA. Some employers are wanting to subsidize the COBRA coverage as a way to help employees. So talk about that a little bit. Are they doing it for everybody? Can can they pick and choose who they're doing this for? What are some things to think about? With right. COBRA? No, those are some very good points. And we have seen employers that, uh, you know, they feel very badly that they're in this situation. They've got to terminate employees. Um, they have to push them onto COBRA in some way, or they've lost eligibility for the plan because they've had they've been put on furlough. They've moved on to COBRA. COBRA. COBRA is obviously more expensive than under active coverage because the employer can charge 102%. So many employers have said, hey, I'd like to pick up this portion of COBRA premiums for this period of time. Can we do so? Um, and the answer is, is probably yes. The thing you must consider as you identified, Chase, in your question was, who are you going to offer that to? And mm-hmm. generally, to avoid discrimination issues, you you need to offer it to everyone equally. So um, the, the group of people that we're most concerned with, obviously, are those highly comped employees. So you don't want to offer some type of COBRA subsidy for those employees and not for other employees. You're really safest if you offer it across the board. Right. Yeah. Get out of any of those discrimination issues. Those could potentially result in adverse taxation for your more highly comped employees. Right. And then um, another thing to consider with tax is most of the time if employers are paying for COBRA premiums for employees or former employees, that's non-taxable to the employer or former employee unless that employee has elected coverage for a non-tax dependent uh, like a domestic partner in which case the employer would have to figure out the tax consequences as well. Um, But let's turn uh, slightly here, pivot to talking about rehiring employees. Let's stay with premiums, though. You mentioned employees uh, may be required to pay premiums during the furlough if they remain eligible. Many employers will allow that, but then collect premiums in arrears. Right. What are the issues to think about with that? Well, that's right. And and if you think of payment for these premiums during the furlough, think of it similar to how you would um, handle FMLAs. And, and what we have is employers are faced with, again, they've decided to extend coverage. You've got employees that are furloughed. They may or may not be receiving pay. If they're not receiving pay, they could be receiving unemployment benefits. And so the employer may want to consider that when they consider how they want to handle premium payments. But you generally have one of three ways. Actually, four ways if we consider the employer could just pay for it. Right. Um, but if we're going to have the employee pay a portion thereof, they could do it in one of three ways. One is they could either prepay. Very unlikely in this situation. Pandemic obviously crept up on us very quickly. Mm-hmm. Employers have had to just react very quickly. Secondly would be paying while the employee is on leave. The employee would still contribute directly. Um, they would have to do it on a post-tax basis in some other manner. They could be doing it um, through if they do receive employment benefits. The employer would have to judge whether employees actually have access to any funds that they could, that they could make the premium payments during their leave. And then third, which is the way that many employers have chosen to do so, is to front those premium payments during leave and then uh, seek to repayment on when the employee returns to work. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the concern there is, do we have to pay a lump sum on when they return? The employees, most employees can afford to do so. So they need to be able to pay it out, out um, over a period of time. 
Right. You also have to consider state laws. There are state laws that would limit the amount that an employer can deduct, and so it would be capped as to what they could um, deduct from the employee's paycheck. So those are really some considerations there. Also, of course, if you have an employee who doesn't return, right. then the employer's just at risk at not being able to recover those premiums, but that's just a risk that they would probably decide to take um, otherwise. Yeah, so some risks there, kind of no matter what the employer does. But um, let's talk about rehiring employees with respect to waiting periods and benefit um, eligibility date upon return. We talked a little bit about um, delaying that in certain situations. Is it possible to treat a new a rehire as a new hire and apply a, apply a waiting period? What are some things to think about there? Yeah, so so generally, again, as we, we it seems like we always say this in the compliance world, check your plan documents, mm-hmm. um, but see what your plan documents say and, and see what they say, for one, about just waiting periods generally. As we know, the ACA required a waiting period less than 90 days. Many employers have a 30-day waiting period, so you've just got to see, first of all, what that is. The plan de- documents may treat rehire separately and may allow for a shorter um, waiting period for rehires. Um, however, so look at your plan documents the length of time will be key as to when the employee was terminated and when they're rehired. And then that also comes comes into play when you consider if the employer is a large employer under the ACA. Um, now, when we talk about this, this gets a bit more complex and we're going to hit it at a high level. There's more things to consider than I will be able to dig in today. So I want to put a plug in for mm-hmm. our FAQs that are on our website. Mm-hmm. Um, but just know that generally, Uh, When you're talking about rehires under the ACA, you want to determine if this employee who's being rehired is either a continuing employee or whether they're considered a terminated and rehired employee. If they're continuing, then the employer must must offer coverage as if they were as if they had never left. And so they must offer them coverage right away. If they are a terminated and rehired employee, they may treat them as a new employee and and then institute the waiting periods as they are structured. So whether that's they put them through another measurement period in order to then qualify once again for um, full-time status, um, but, but it allows a bit more delay in that offer of coverage if they are considered a rehired employee versus a continuing employee. Mm-hmm. Um, but in order, so you might say, okay, well, how do I determine that? Right. That's the big question. The big question. How do you decide whether they're continuing or rehired? Well, you look at the amount of time between when they were terminated and the, when they were rehired. And so under the ACA, if it's less than 13 weeks, it's going to be considered a um, continuing employee, more than 13 weeks, a terminated and rehired employee. Of course, that goes up to 26 weeks if you're an educational institution. Um, but generally, those that's the issue at a high level many deeper issues that we could get into that would quickly put you to sleep. <laughs> well, important for employers to make that determination correctly so that they're not risking employer mandate penalties by treating a rehire as a new employee when they should be a continuing employee. Right. What about some of these spending accounts, health FSAs and dependent care FSAs? What to do when an employee uh, goes on furlough and when they return for those? On the health FSAs, if the furlough results in a loss of health FSA eligibility, then many times it's just mandatory that it is the individual is no longer um, eligible, and the health health FSA will then terminate. If there there is no longer funding into the FSA, then the employee can no longer receive reimbursements from the FSA. So it's basically closed down. It's suspended for a period of time. In some situations, the employer could continue to pay those FSA. Uh, contributions on behalf of the employee and allow that FSA account to remain open so the employee could access those funds. 
Um, but if we look at a situation in which it's suspended, it, when the employee returns to work, you now have uh, fewer months in which the employee can contribute to that FSA. So the employer has a decision on whether the employee will make a pro rata, a change in the amount of contributions that they'll make. So they'll continue the same amount of contributions for the rest of the year and then have to make a pro rata reduction in the amount of funds that are available mm -hmm. under the FSA. Or if they want to recalculate the number, the amount that's left within the number of within the amount of time that's left in the remaining year, so there will, will have to be some adjustments if there's been a a break in there or a suspension of the FSA during that furlough. Right. And what about if um, we've talked about furloughs so far with this? What if this was a FMLA leave um, under the new expanded FMLA or regular FMLA leave? How does that impact the FSA? Right. So if the reason the employee is taking leave is because the employee has COVID-19, mm -hmm. for example, or or they're taking care of a family member who has COVID-19, then it's possible that they qualify for FMLA. Or as you mentioned, the FFCRA, um, under the expanded FMLA, if they're taking care of a child who is at home because they have a school closure, they may qualify under the FFCRA. In those situations, you've got leave that is protected. So if the leave is FMLA protected, then the benefits such as the FSA should not be dropped by the employer and the benefits should continue on the same terms as it was prior to the leave. However, if the employee wants to drop coverage during that unpaid leave, there is a qualifying event that would allow them to change that benefit. If we focus now on DCAPs or dependent care FSAs, when there is a change in the cost of the provider or an, a participant changes um, the dependent care providers, or then the plan may permit a mid-year change in the election. And the election change may include starting, stopping, modifying that DCAP election, depending on the employee's situation. It needs, again, to be consistent with whatever the, the change in the situation is. In the current COVID-19 environment, with daycares and with other child care providers that are temporary closing, typically the corresponding change that we would see is a decrease in the DCAP election. And so you could allow your employees to decrease the amount that they're contributing into the DCAP. Right. So some differences there with health FSA and dependent care. The election change rules are a little bit looser for dependent care. You also wouldn't have the same FMLA protections for dependent care FSA as you would for health care FSA. Uh, but definitely important to review Section 125, Dependent Care Plan Documents, uh, when you're talking about election changes there. Are there additional plan or benefits considerations uh, when employees return to work that we haven't mentioned yet, Suzanne? Well, you know, again, we like to get back to this idea of plan documents. It seems mm -hmm. to be a favorite of ours. and and um, But just consider that if there have been changes to eligibility um, and you've had someone who has lost eligibility under the plan, they're now returning to work, they must be distributed new SPDs. So technically, even if they were rehired within 30 days, the plan must automatically distribute a new SPD if they lost coverage between termination and rehire. So if your employees remain eligible for coverage during the pandemic, you may have been paying the employee and the employer portion of the premium. And if the eligibility requirements during the pandemic differ from the rules in your plan documents or you decided to offer telehealth benefits, mm -hmm. for example, just make sure that you review those plan documents with legal counsel and amend them how you need to accordingly and, and make those distributions when you need to. Great. So lots more to think about as we gear up towards returning to work, uh, potentially. And Suzanne mentioned our webinar series that we'll be doing specifically on that, that will go much deeper. 
much further into other issues beyond benefits compliance with innovation, with safety at work, uh, asking questions of employees as they return to work. Privacy, that's correct. Privacy, all of that will be covered. So look for an announcement on that soon. But thank you for recapping these issues, Suzanne. This is helpful. And as we like to say... That's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us.